Hey there, Road Warriors. Before we begin today's show, here's a podcast. Hello, my name is Anna, and if you're into scary stories and creepy real-life happenings, then I think you will love my podcast. Let me tell you a scary story. Join me every week as I read to you stories of the paranormal that actually happen to ordinary people. These are things that can't be explained and don't always make much sense. And they are sure to intrigue and to give you the shivers. So join me on your favourite podcast listening platform and let me tell you a scary story. I guess we think you'll love. Check it out. Why, hello, friends and enemies. Hello, friends and enemies. Friends, enemies. Hello, friends and enemies. Gather round. In theory, this is an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. Perhaps it's you. That's the name of the show. I'm Samantha. I'm Liz. We're one of many Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcasts watching the original Robert Stack episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. We're here to complain about the thing we're supposed to like, Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries. That was a great shot. You're doing the Lord's work. (laughs) I will say right off the bat that this is going to be a good mustache season. (laughs) I like to think that Robert Stack wore a full suit just to like take out the garbage. (laughs) Just all the time. Yeah. Are you ready to solve some mysteries with us? The Stack is back. That's... Man, that's really terrible. I love, I yeah, it is. But I love saying it. <laughs> We're here to talk to you about some fucking mysteries. <laughs> we sure are. We're on like all those podcast things, or you can listen at perhapsisyou.com. We hope this brought a little mystery into your life. Keep cackling and keep barking, everybody. Welcome to episode 67, Wyoming. Wyoming. I'm your host, Chris. Across from me and looking at me like I'm an idiot is oh. James. Hey, what's up, people? How you doing, brother? And uh, today we're going to get into the two tales. Uh, the Carbon County Museum and Tale of Big Nose George, which uh, sounds kind of fun. It is, it's an interesting story. You ought to really dig it. And then we're going to get into the Cokeville miracle or the Cokeville hostage negotiation that occurred in uh, 1986. And then James is whispering yeah. to me because... He, I don't know why I do motion. Like, how many, like we're on video. How many years how many have we time, done this? We've done this like three years now? What, well, state of fear we've done, I believe we're going on... To, we're a little over two now. Yeah. Please. And what this looks like four, right? Well, almost four years. And you still whisper every time. I still whisper. <laughs> I wave my hands like... You... Hey, hey. hey. I think because you have the headphones on and you're in front of a mic, you think you're on a live radio station. Well, see, we can't. It, you know, it's got to be known that we ain't perfect. <laughs> well, know. trust I me. I know we just put on a slam bang show here, but yet, you know, after 67 episodes, they know. Yeah, stuff happens in the background. Yeah, <laughs> let's get into your let's get into your story <laughs> first, buddy. Go ahead. All right, this, my fellow road warriors, is one of the most macabre yet extremely interesting point of interest I have done so far on this show. Today, we visit the Carbon County Museum in Rawlings, Wyoming, a small town of less than 10,000 people. 
The museum itself boasts a pretty impressive collection, including the furniture and some equipment and other items from the room in which Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Bulb? Yeah, he was on vacation there, so they actually preserved his room and put it in the museum. That's cool. He actually successfully invented the light bulb here to where it actually lasted because he had several failures, you know, blah, blah, blah. Lots of failures. Yeah. As impressive as that may be, it pales in comparison to the museum's star attraction and subject of today's story, which makes this place a must-see on any trip through the Rollins, Wyoming area. (laughs) Folks, I speak of none other than George Francis Warden, a.k.a. George Perot, a.k.a. Big Nose George. He was an infamous horse thief and train robber in the late 1800s. His fate would be sealed when he botched a robbery in 1878 in which he and his gang killed two lawmen and fled to Montana. Did it work? Nope. He may have escaped capture, but it seems his mouth was as big as his nose (laughs) and his bragging about his crimes and stuff finally got him captured and hauled back to Rollins to face the hangman. He was swiftly convicted, and before sentence could be carried out, he was lynched by an impatient mob, as it often happens in those days. In a final act of defiance, (laughs) this cracks me up. I'm sorry. I know they're hanging a guy, but he's a criminal. But as a final act of defiance, he actually wrapped himself around the telephone pole that they hung him from, trying to save himself. That's awesome. Genius. (laughs) He's not going down without a fight. He hugged it. Yep. But gravity won the day, and he eventually choked to death. In the struggle, though, the rope sheared off his ears completely, so he went violently and painfully. Youch. When they went to bury him, it was said that his nose was so big it interfered with closing the coffin, so it was forced down and nailed shut. They basically broke his nose so they could close his coffin. Jesus. But it would not remain so very long. Like some Frankenstein tale, two local doctors stole his body and hid it in a whiskey barrel. Apparently, one of the doctors, John Osborne, didn't like George because he was on a train that he had robbed, which caused him to miss a party. (laughs) Yeah, shit. Very Uh, inconvenienced, apparently. Oh, man, apparently. That's horrible. Must have been one heck of a party because the doctor's payback would be something of horror movie legend. Dr. Osborne, along with Dr. Tom McGee, wanted to experiment on his brain to see if there were differences between a criminal brain and a normal brain. So Abby and, you know, Abby normal, you know. Oh, yeah. Ba-dum-bum. <laughs> this research, Dr. McGee hoped, would give him insight on what to do about his wife's condition. She was injured in a couple of horse accidents and was criminally insane as a result, apparently. Just probably violent. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. That is nuts. But the so-called research would go way beyond that. Let's start at the top, shall we? Pudump. Do it. The first thing they did was to make a death mask of his face without ears, of course, because they were gone. Right. Then the top of his skull was removed so they could take the brain out for examination. But it begs to ask, where were they going to get normal brains to examine? You know, and make a comparison. You know, that's just kind of weird. Now it gets bad. (laughs) 
Apparently, Dr. Osborne's dislike of Big Nose George was worse than a double-crossed mob boss, so he peeled the skin off of his chest and thighs and had this fool taxidermied and turned into a medical bag, a coin purse, and finally a pair of shoes. Oh, my God. Yeah. To add insult to injury... The doctor had the shoes worn by George when he was hung, altered into some nice two-tone loafers, half from the original shoes and half from below the str- you know, about from the strings down, made from his skin. That is some some vindictive he had shit his right own, there. I know, that man. That's crazy. crazy. Loafers, which I may add, he wore to his inauguration as the state's first Democratic governor, and I believe that was in 1893. Now, after all that. They kept his body in a barrel for over a year until they were done with experiments, which also yielded several items for the museum. The barrel was then buried behind their offices, possibly to avoid prosecution, I would think, and was not discovered until the 1950s during some reconstruction work. Now, inside the barrel was the skull that was intact with the top sawed off, and they also had the shoes that were made from George's skin. They had the shoes, and I was like, good Lord his death mask, and a few other items. Yeah, that makes me think they were trying to dodge some kind of... Uh, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. The remains were identified using DNA matching, confirming that they were his, and then cremated, most likely. It does not say if they were buried or not. It never says what became of some of these items. Now, all of these items are on full display at the museum in Rollins for all to see. I mean, I saw it. It's like a picture of it. It's like a skull, the shoes, everything, man. Wow. Now, the missing skull cap is still a source of discomfort and aggravation for some in the region. The doctors gave it to their... (laughs) Then she was a teenager. She was like 15 years old. They gave it to her assistant, gave him a top of a cap. I was like, great. Gee, thanks, Doc. Exactly. Her name was Lillian Heath. You know, like I said, at the time, she was only 15 years old. You know, she was going to become a doctor. So, without any regard, it was used as a pencil and pen holder, and eventually her husband used it as an ashtray. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, it's multi-use, huh? Yeah. Now, decades later, in her 90s, she was convinced by some at the Union Pacific Museum in Council Bluff, Iowa, to lend them the skull cap, and now they refuse to return it. Those jerks. And very much the aggravation of the museum staff in Rollins, of course. The Iowa Museum also has the shackles worn by George at his lynching. You just can't beat good old Western justice. Harsh as it may be, was definitely swift and effective. George should have kept his big mouth shut. Now, I am no fan of criminals, but he was caught and hung and did not die quickly. I know it was another time, but I do not agree with what they did to him post-mortem. He paid his dues, and I'm sure still is. Like I said, must have been one hell of a party George made Mr. T- you know, Dr. Osborne miss. It's pretty crappy. Wow. <laughs> he kept his big mouth shut and his big nose clean. He would be he, alive today, probably. He would indeed. Just don't rob trains and don't rob, don't steal horses. Basically. Don't steal them. Don't do or it. Don't make a doctor or judge late to a party. They will That's fuck you right. up. Hey, watch Yellowstone. Yeah. 
I'm exactly. sorry. Just watch Yellowstone. Watch Yellowstone. Old West Justice. A lot, lot of life lessons from that show. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool, man. I was, that was, uh, that was pretty gruesome. Pretty gruesome. Man, wow. I mean, pretty messed up. Way to go, Wyoming. I mean, those you talk about Air Jordans being commodities. Those skin shoes were some serious is, commodities. Yeah, and it's, why, and it's very sparsely populated yeah. state, too. You know, yeah, a lot of places hide a body. Got some, got some weirdos out there. <laughs> it's all right, though. I like Wyoming. Yeah, it's a pretty place. Gorgeous state. Yeah. All right, man, well, let's take a break, and then let's come back and talk about the uh, Cokeville hostage crisis. Yes, sir. About 1.30 on May 16th, 1986, former town marshal David Young and his wife Doris walked into Cokeville Elementary School transporting a homemade bomb on a cart and brandishing guns. They corralled a group of about 154 students and teachers into a classroom and began a two and a half hour standoff that would end in a way no one could expect. No one? No one. Fantastic. Definitely not David Young. Cokeville in 1986 had a population of about 500 people. Just over 100 of those were children who attended Cokeville Elementary, so very small town. Very small. Being a small town on the Wyoming-Idaho border, many residents felt it was a completely safe place to raise their children. So, Young's hostage situation caught everyone off guard. David Young's journals and writings reveal that he was a troubled man who spent many years grappling with deep philosophical questions about man's existence, the afterlife, and spirituality. Young was educated at Shadron State College in Nebraska, where he earned a degree in criminal justice and was hired as Cokeville Towns Marshal in the 1970s. He would be dismissed, however, from his position shortly after his six-month probationary period. Dismissed means fucking fired. Yep, means he fucked up. Young met his second wife, Doris Waters, while in Cokeville. She was a divorcee who earned money working as a waitress and singer at a local bar. Shortly after their wedding, David and Doris left Cokeville and headed to Tucson, Arizona. Tucson. Tucson AZ. Yep. During their time in Tucson, according to Doris' daughter, Bernie Peterson, <laughs> David became increasingly reclusive, focusing on his philosophical writings and readings. While he was writing his philosophy, titled Zero Equals Infinity, that is a that is the douchiest fucking title I've ever heard Stupid. Of Plus it doesn't. <laughs> According to his philosophy, it does though, James. You just you're not in his philosophy. Yeah, I'm putting my foot in his ass. <laughs> Doris took Doris took part time jobs, including housekeeping and waitressing. Housekeeping? To support their meager lifestyle. Yep. You want me for pillow? They lived in a mobile home with Princess, David's youngest daughter from his first marriage. He was the father of two, but estranged from his older daughter. Probably knew he was a douche. It was in their Tucson home that David came up with what he considered, quote-unquote, the biggie. Oh, jeez. Planned to get rich quick and create what he described as, quote-unquote, a brave new world. Pyramid scheme. Yeah, he's, well, he's, he's, he's one of those, um, what do you call it? Start the apocalypse type people. Oh, jeez. Yeah. A, a Reverend Kane type? Yes, exactly. Uh, this plan involved David's longtime friends, 
Gerald Depp and Doyle Mendenhall, who believed by investing in David's scheme, they would get rich quick. But David refused to reveal his plans entirely until moments before they unfolded. How the hell are you supposed to do anything right if you don't know what the plan is? Because <laughs> somehow I guess he was quote unquote charismatic enough to, to maybe they were, they were they were really like low on the IQ bar and just whatever he says. David's friends did not know that the quote unquote biggie was a plan to take over Cokeville Elementary School, hold each of the children hostage for two million dollars apiece. A piece. A piece. A town of five hundred people. And a hundred yeah. Hundred kids. hundred kids. Two million apiece. So they a want piece. they want two hundred million dollars for these kids. In a tiny town of five hundred. Who the hell got two hundred million dollars in the whole state? You probably you probably can buy the entire town for a quarter of that. Probably. Yeah, at least at that time anyway. And then detonate the bomb. Transporting the money and children to his quote unquote brave new world, where he would be God. So, yes, he was a cult leader. Then. Oh, jeez. Mm-hmm. While David and Doris Young were not involved in an organized religion, both were deeply spiritual. They believed in reincarnation, which probably led, in part, to the creation of David's brave new world idea. See, now what is this with the whole David thing? Guys named David are nuts. Yeah. Are religious nuts. Well, and I think, uh, what was his face? David Koresh. Yeah, but he changed his name. That wasn't his real name. Doesn't matter. But he changes to David, yeah. When, when he started his cult, yeah. <laughs> Somehow, because it, it's an old Bible name. Yep. It's an old Bible name, and they think. I mean, they 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 don't want to take the name of Jesus because that would be probably too much. Oh, that'd be way too much. Yeah, but of course, Koresh used it. Yeah, he did. You yeah. know, I'm Jesus. Yeah. You know, we're gonna have some barbecue, so hang around and join my cult. Yeah, yeah, and it's gonna be fun and, and groovy, man. Groovy. And no, that wasn't a pun. No, it wasn't. No, because they had cookouts and shit, and they oh, were yeah, trying yeah. to recruit people. Oh, yeah. They had all so, kinds of shit going on. Yeah, so that uh, I just thought about that, and then how it ended over there. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, Never mind. Was it the ATF fucked that up? Yeah. Man, they fucked Massively. it up. Poor. Yeah, ugh, it's terrible. It's the government. Ugh. David's writings revealed that he hoped life would be better for him and Cokeville's children in this imaginary place. It wouldn't have been. It would have been hell. It had been horrible. When Depp and Mendenhall finally got wind of his plans moments before the hostage crisis unfolded, they refused to participate. Good for them. Yeah. David, who dared not risk their reporting him to the authorities, responded to that by holding them at gunpoint and then instructing Doris and Princess, who by now was a young adult, to handcuff them inside his van. Yeah, you should have probably decided well i mean i'm sure he they didn't know it says until the moment before which means that they rolled up to the school in the van and he's like okay we're gonna take some hostages and they're like fuck my life yeah what we gonna do what (laughs) (laughs) i thought we were going for tacos man i I thought we were going to sizzler man what the hell (laughs) david doris and princess that's a dumb name proceeded to the elementary school and entered the building shortly after 1 p.m that friday David had the makeshift bomb attached to his body and housed inside a grocery cart, while Doris and Princess carried an arsenal of rifles, handguns, and ammunition, as well as the zero equals infinity handouts. Was it enough 
that they were holding these people hostage. They were going to torture them with their stupid fucking philosophy. Yeah. I'll make you read the damn I, I'd be like, just, you know, just shoot me. <laughs> this shit makes no sense. Can you please shoot me? I'm getting ahead. I've only been here five years, but I can't take that. That's just it. Kill me. Let me. I'm going to just go on to heaven now. Even a five-year-old be like, this is the dumbest shit exactly. I've in my life. It's Before I no grow sense. up to screw up and end up in hell, just go ahead and shoot me now. My, my, my choice is between death and go with you with this shit. Bullshit. Yep. But shortly before entering the building, Princess decided to rebel. Oh, man. She fled the building and drove the Young's van, with Depp and Mendenhall still inside, to the town hall, where she reported her father's plan. Because they refused to participate, Princess, Depp, and Mendenhall were never charged in relation to this crime. Good for them. Very good for them, yeah. I'm glad she came to her senses. Hell yeah, because, man, shoot. That's some fucked up you, shit. You don't, you don't mess with the kids, man. Hell no. Leave the children alone. I mean, a famous person once said, the children are the future. They are. That's right. I think it was... Um, Miss Houston? Oh, yeah. It was her, too. But I was thinking of uh, sexual chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mr. Randy Watson. Randy Watson. That's right. In the meantime, David and Doris Young gathered children, teachers, staff, and visitors in the elementary school into one central location. They attempted to crowd 154 people into one of the two first grade classrooms, a room with a total capacity of only 30 students and a teacher. So triple. Yipe. Triple. Yeah, that's sardine can right mm-hmm. there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. David set himself near the center of the room with the grocery cart bomb nearby as doors went from room to room rounding people up. Is there a picture of this grocery store bomb by chance? Uh, Probably I'm not. I'm sure there is. I think there might have been beforehand, I think. Or, That's, oh, my yeah. Lord have mercy. I think there was one after after it blew up because it didn't mm-hmm. blow up directly outward. It went yeah. upward. So I think there's there's like remnants of it. I'm sure some, some clerk over at the Kroger was like pissed because he was short one cart. <laughs> the bomb... <laughs> The bomb was an improvised explosive device constructed in a small two-wheeled shopping... Oh, it was a two-wheeled shopping cart. So it was an old-school one. Okay. With two baskets, one on top of one another. Gotcha. Okay. So it's more of like like one that people bring yeah. to their house. Yeah. I gotcha. The top basket contained a gallon milk jug of gasoline wired with a blasting cap. Below the jug in the bottom basket were two tuna fish cans filled with a mixture of aluminum powder and flour meant to aerosolize and deflag... Deflagrate, 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 and deflagrate following detonation, each with its own blasting cap. Mm. One bla- three blasting caps total. Throughout both baskets were chain links, gunpowder, and boxes of ammunition acting as shrapnel. Lovely. The mechanism was triggered by a dead man switch, consisting of a wooden piece separating two metal connectors within the jaws of a clothespin, forming an incomplete circuit. So if he were to be killed... His hand would let go of the yeah. the bottom of the clothespin. It would it would connect. That's it. Boom. Yep. If anybody ever saw Miles Bennett Dyson in uh, the um, second Terminator movie? Oh yeah. When he was holding that detonator, that's shaking, right. and when he croaked, he fell. That's a dead man switch. Bam. Yep. Mm-hmm. If that's of any relevance here, but the circuit was powered by a nine volt lantern battery. Once the wooden piece was removed, the two metal connectors completed the circuit, detonating the bomb. The wooden piece was tied to David's wrist by a string. Okay, so he wasn't holding the bottom of the pin. He had a wood piece in between the top of the, the clothespin piece. Yeah. And then if he pulled that piece out, it connected and bam, yep. there you go. Okay. Young had, Young had built a similar bomb before while living in Arizona 
and has success. While he while he attended the Wiley Coyote, <laughs> while he attended the Wiley Coyote School of Demolition, and had successively blown up an empty school bus. So he did he did it before. He oh, made this crude, super crude bomb before, and it worked before. So he figured it worked again. What the hell? In the classroom, David held the gasoline bomb with the triggering mechanism attached to a string tied around his wrist. He demanded a ransom of two million per hostage, which would be three hundred eight million total. Back in 1986, $720 million adjusted for inflation. Damn. And an audience within President Ronald Reagan. Well, well, I don't. I ain't giving that son of a bitch a damn thing. We don't give in to terrorists, so I'm going to go back and watch ALF. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) David had also sent a copy of the manifesto to Reagan, who probably thought it was the dumbest shit he ever read in his life. And he reads a lot of stuff, so he, yeah. Next person to bring me shit like this, I'm going <laughs> to kill you personally. Well, I don't see how zero equals infinity, but then again, I'm not a math major. I'm an actor. Nope. Who's the president? Ronald Reagan. The actor? Yep. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> With permission, teachers brought in books, art supplies, and a television to help keep the children occupied. Meanwhile, police and parents gathered out of sight of the schoolroom where hostages were gathered. Doris tried numerous times to calm the children by telling them to, quote, think of it as an adventure movie, end quote, or that they, quote, would have a great story to tell their grandchildren, end quote. In the... Um, because that's what five-year-olds are thinking of, our grandchildren. Yeah. In the infinite words of Quinn from Six Days and Seven Nights, it doesn't, good, it doesn't do any good to run around waving my arms in the air and yelling, oh, shit, we're going to die. Yeah. Many children showed signs of distress with sobs, complaining of headaches from the gasoline smell, or simply wanting to go home. One hostage observed a birthday on that day, and songs were sung in his honor. The hostage takers took part in the singing as well. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Hope you have another one. Happy birthday to you. Kaboom. That's it. The mood did not lift with the singing, and teachers quickly negotiated with the hostage takers to get items from the library to help the kids keep their minds off the siege and to help pass the time. Windows were opened to rid the room of the gasoline fumes, and prayers were offered in small groups among the children. All these would be just the right steps taken to keep everyone alive. I see what I'm sitting here thinking. I'm picturing old school. There's the stupid UV bulbs, the old school Mm -hmm. lights. Gasoline fumes are what blow up, not the actual gasoline. Right, right. You know, in some cases, you can throw a lit match into a barrel of gas. It won't go off, but it's the fumes that go kabloom. Of course, I'm not going to experiment and try that, but I've I heard mean, that. We can always do it on your shed. Yeah, that's true. Throughout the standoff, David grew increasingly agitated and irritable. With fear that David might become unhinged, the teachers decided to make an eight-foot square with masking tape of their of his own personal space. Okay, now you, you said might come unhinged. <laughs> well, okay, he's taking an entire school hostage. You know, he's got a hundred kids in there with a bomb. I guess it become more unhinged. Becomes unhinged. More unhinged. Yeah. Carol Peterson, second grade teacher at the school at the time, stated, "Quote: We could tell he was becoming very nervous. As I sat there and watched him, I could feel he was becoming agitated. He had just big rings of perspiration." I was frightened and I felt that we needed to do something to try and calm down or to be careful because he was so agitated. So we decided to take some masking tape and we taped 
I think it was an eight foot square in the middle of the room right here. And he pushed the cart, the homemade bomb into this. And we told the children that this was a magic square. Don't oh, go past the square. His safe space. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the children just sat all around and just watched him. And I'm sure that made him very nervous, end quote. They probably look at him like, look at this stupid motherfucker right like, here. Or some are like, well, good, I ain't got to do math now. That's great. That's right, man. No homework no today. No homework, bro. Yay, no test. <laughs> About two and a half hours into the standoff, David transferred the triggering mechanism of the bomb to Doris's wrist and went into a small bathroom that connected the first and second grade rooms. Here. Don't kill the children while I'm gone, but I got to go piss. Here, hold this. <laughs> Don't kill the children. Doris developed a headache from the gasoline fumes and raised her hand to her forehead. Yipe. This unintentionally activated the trigger mechanism and the bomb exploded, severely injuring Doris and filling the room with black smoke and pockets of fire. Immediately following the detonation, the teacher started to shove children into the hallway and through two open windows onto the grass outside the school, causing chaos as panicked parents tried to break through the police lines. Oh, jeez. The subsequent police report states that David opened the door from the connecting bathroom. What the hell's going on out here? Saw his wife injured on the floor and shot her in the head. What a guy. Then he shot and wounded John Miller, a music teacher who was trying to flee, then closed the bathroom door and killed himself with a shot from a forty-five pistol to the head. I'm sure that was his plan all along. If everything goes to shit, I'm going to kill her and kill myself. I'm fucked either way, so just kill myself. Yeah. It, it might be a, a justice he did her because I'm sure she was probably mangled and burned Yeah, put her severely. out of her misery for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, she went along with it, so she deserved it. Yeah. Parents and police ran towards the school as students and teachers began scrambling out of the open windows to escape the smoke and fire. Somehow, during all this chaos, though, Doris's burnt and dead body was expelled through a window and was later found on the, lying on the front lawn. <laughs> <laughs> what? Someone must have, I don't know, actually picked her up or... Hey, get him out of here. Oh, wait a minute. They might yeah. have thought she was one of the kids. I, I think in, in that sort of chaos... Or one of the teachers, maybe. Yeah, in that chaos, you, I mean, if you, you don't, don't know, know what's going on, you don't want to leave anybody behind. But you're going to take a burned up person and Again, throw them onto a lawn. Yeah. There's no explanation of how it got there. It's the police report just stated that it was on the front lawn. That's crazy. Following the explosion, 79 children were taken to area hospitals, most of which were located more than an hour's drive from Cokeville. All told, the hostages suffered mostly second-degree burns, smoke inhalation, and other injuries. Second-degree burns ain't no joke. That stuff hurts. Still better than being dead, though. Yes, it is. Miraculously, the only people who lost their lives that day were David and Doris Young. Even John Miller would recover from being shot in the back. Good. Sorry, John. Sorry to take a slug, but... Yeah, that sucks. Glad yeah. you live, but the heck with both those other idiots. Now, how the teachers and students escaped the grasp of death became attributed to both divine intervention and a perfect set of circumstances. Yeah. So let's get into those. First off, Cokeville was a highly religious and largely Mormon community. So many recalled praying silently throughout the standoff. Some formed prayer circles and others even recalled seeing angels. Very interesting. Ron Hartley, lead investigator for the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office, had four children involved in the hostage situation. All four survived, and he later learned that his six-year-old son had confided in a psychologist they had seen angels in the classroom that day. Hmm. His son told him that there were angels for everyone in the room that day, and just prior to the detonation, the angels joined hands around the bomb and went up through the ceiling with the explosion. Crazy. I believe it. 
When he further questioned his son, he said that his angel looked like Grandma Meister. However, she was still living. Hartley then got out the family album, and while looking through it, his son shouted, That's her. That's my angel. The boy had pointed to Grandma Elliot, who had been dead for three or four years. Wow. And um, to a young kid. I love stories like that. To a young kid, all old people look the same. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to tell one from the other. They were old. They were old and wrinkly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, other stories came out of kids identifying more ancestors who had been there that day and kept them safe from the explosion. Katie Walker Payne stated, quote, As I sat coloring, I looked up and saw a woman dressed in a long white dress. She had short, dark brown hair. She said to me, Katie, I love you very much. You need to listen to your brother and remember that I will always love you. I remember just nodding my head. I looked down for a second, and when I looked back up, she was gone. Soon after that, my brother came over and told me we were going to sit by the window. I followed him and sat down, and he then went and got my sister, Rachel. He told us that he had to tell his friends he was going to sit with us, and he would be right back. He walked across the room, and the bomb detonated. Eight months later, Payne learned who the woman was when her mother pulled out an old locket. I kept telling my parents about the lady who had talked to me and that I didn't know who she was, she recalls. But I knew the instant my mom opened the locket that it was her. Wow. My mom then told us that that was her mom, Ah. our grandma, who had died when my mom was 15 years old. Oh, man. Yeah. Bummer. Jenny Sorensen Johnson, a first grade survivor, had a similar experience. Quote, I had a teacher, quote unquote, help me out of that burning classroom that I did not know. She says, I don't remember her saying anything to me, but I trusted and followed her out of the burning room. I turned around once to go back for a shoe that had come off when I was trying to escape, but she motioned for me to keep coming through the bathroom entry and I followed. My shoe. My shoe. As Johnson continued to attend Cokeville Elementary after the incident, she searched for the teacher who had helped her that day. Years later, when Johnson was about 12 years old, she finally learned the identity of the mysterious woman. While looking through a family album with her grandmother, Johnson stopped at a familiar face. Quote, I asked what grade this particular woman had taught and why she quit teaching after the bombing. My grandma, Tumor, Tumor, it's not the tuba. It's not a tumor. I think it's Tomer. My grandma Tomer looked at the picture of her Aunt Ruth, whom I was referring to, and said she had never been a teacher that she knew of, and that she was not even from Cokeville. I explained that this was a teacher who led me out when the bomb went off, and with tears in her eyes, grandma explained to me that there was no way she could have been there because she died earlier in the 80s. Wow. So now we'll go into the perfect set of circumstances uh, that also help with the bombing, or help keep the bombing from being so deadly, I should say. Cool. First, there was the bomb itself. Yep. The jug of a gasoline had a pinhole-sized leak in the bottom. Ooh. This allowed gasoline to drip into the tuna fish cans. Hence the fumes. Hence the fumes. Turning the aluminum flour mixture into paste, rendering it useless. Ah. The fumes from the gas prompted teachers to open the classroom windows, which unknowingly created a vent system for the impending explosion. Nice. And two of the three blasting caps... On the bomb had failed to detonate because the wires to each tuna can had been reportedly cut. Why they were cut had never been explained. Mm, I wonder if the daughter did it. 
That's a good point. Since she didn't go along with it, maybe before, she sabotaged she left. the piece of shit before she left. Maybe she's the one that popped the hole in the, in the gasoline can, too. Or the gasoline jug. Yeah. yeah. What? Sabotage. Yeah, because they, they, the, the wires weren't, it's not like they weren't connected. They were yeah. connected, but they were clearly cut. Gotcha. When the bomb detonated, the majority of the explosive force was channeled through the loose ceiling tiles into the roof and open windows acting as vents. This significantly mitigated the explosive power of the bomb. Outstanding. Then there was the magic square. With Young becoming more agitated, the teachers made the square in the middle of the room. Young placed the bomb in the middle of the square, and that is where it and the Young stayed. The teachers made a game of it and kept the children on the outside perimeter of the square. Because of this, when the faulty bomb went off and the majority of the explosion went up into the ceiling, the distance of the square was enough to keep the children and teachers safely away from harm. That is very, very cool. And that is the story of the Cokeville Hostage Crisis. Hostage Crisis, a.k.a. Miracle. Yep. I think that's fantastic. It's a pretty good crazy. story, man. It's pretty crazy, huh? I mean, just... That's a sad story, but it's a good story. Well, whatever way, whatever, whichever way you lean towards it, the, the divine intervention or the, the, the perfect set of... Even, even the perfect set of circumstances is almost supernatural in its own right. Yep. Because it wasn't just one thing that caused it to, to go that way. It was... A, a, a perfect storm of, of things you think would not happen, especially with someone who created a bomb originally and had it go off without a hitch. Yep. And you had all these issues with it that helped uh, mitigate this 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 bomb explosive power. Like I said, it could have been the intervention. It could have been, like I said, we talked about the daughter. Yeah. You never know. Either, either one is pretty fascinating. Even if a teacher had a chance to maybe poke it when he wasn't looking or something, you know, you just don't know. You don't know, but I mean, I doubt it. But because yeah, yeah. because the teacher wouldn't know that poking it would do anything good to it, yeah, or w- w- would help mitigate the, the the explosive power. They, I mean, if anything, they would think poking it would just let gasoline onto the floor, and that's not safe. No. So I don't think a teacher had anything to do with that, and unless it was a science teacher, but there was no mention of that being in the story. Deesh. So yeah, I like it, man. Yeah, man, it's pretty crazy, huh? Great story. Dude. Yeah, great story. All right, man. Well, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can go support us and find extra content? Indeed. Folks, if you'd like to support the show, just go to www.patreon.com forward slash state of fear. We have one level, seven bucks called the Road Warrior. You just go in there. You got access to all of our early episodes, ad free stuff, bloopers, commentary tracks. We have uh, we've done some reviews on some paranormal stuff. There's all kinds of good stuff in there. Seven bucks. Give it a shot because we would definitely appreciate it, friends. Absolutely. All right, bud. I think we're heading over to uh, Mississippi next. Mississippi. Go get some good old Southern food, man. Yes, sir. (laughs) 